by Paul David Tripp called Parenting. It is a fantastic book on parenting. Grace-filled. We got to sit under his teaching down in Florida, and he had been going through some severe physical ailments, and every four months he had gone to get some pretty extensive surgery for a couple years. Every four months, another surgery. He went through a season where he couldn't remember. He just looks back and doesn't remember. Well, he wrote this book in a season of his life that he cannot remember. He does not remember writing this book. And when it was published, when, it, when he got the first copies of it, he, had knew he, had, he, he knew he had written a book. And when he got the copies of it, he actually read it because he did not remember writing it. It was in between series, a series of, of these surgeries, and he didn't even remember it. And uh, he said what well, he thinks there's... Uh, um, there's been so much positive response is that he literally, it was just God's grace flowing through him because he didn't have the strength to even remember that season of his life. And so uh, it's just a fascinating book. And um, I would encourage you, it's 14 principles, grace-filled principles on uh, parenting. It is just so, so good and would encourage you to get that. I'm going to read from some of it here in a little bit and you'll be able to get kind of a picture of, of what it's about. Um, let's uh, pray one more time. And then this will be week three on parenting. And we'll just, we should tonight. I've only got a 380 word outline, 369 word outline, so it should go quick tonight. So we'll see. Father, we just thank you so much for this night. And that first word I prayed, Father, help us to press into that. I've been so encouraged to think about parenting through the lenses of being parented, that I am a child, and I'm learning parenting from you. I thank you for your gracious instruction of me. I thank you for your patience with me. I thank you that your discipline of me is in love to train me and not to punish me because you're angry at me. I thank you that you go above and beyond to let me know that you love me. Thank you for grace surprises, gifts that I have not earned from you. Thank you for your love and your compassion. I thank you that your love is as vast as an ocean, that the ocean actually, in comparison to your love, looks like a little puddle on the sidewalk. So I just thank you that you're a really, really good parent, that you know how to father your children well. Help us to learn from that. So just uh, lead me tonight, Holy Spirit, just lead us, stir our minds and our hearts to even say and think some things that, uh, that would be mutually encouraging, just back and forth to one another. No matter where we're at on the parenting scale, if we're not parents at all, we're still learning to be your children. So we need this tonight. And uh, God, the things that we talk about, we also want not just for our kids, we want for other people as well. So this is really applicable to just across the board. Older kids, younger kids, no kids, whatever. We're all your children that are here, um, those who are in Christ. And we just, uh, just want to learn tonight. Open our minds and our hearts. And God, I just trust that you're going to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here's a big, big shocker. Our kids are not born Christians. They're not. 
We are not trying to train our children to act like Christians. That's not Christian parenting. We're not training them to act like good, moral people at the expense of their heart. This is somewhat repetitive from the last few weeks. Our kids do not have the Holy Spirit within them. Our kids are not in Christ. They are born in sin. And I, I do want to get to what has been called the age of accountability. We're going to call it, based on my conversation with Andy today, the ability of cognizance. So I want to talk about that for a little bit tonight. But I think it's crucial for us to understand our role as parents and do that by stating the fact that our kids aren't born Christians. And that is it's just a crucial point. We do not want our children to grow up and it dawn on them, just like it did with Beth Ann Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, who had been sitting under his ministry for several years and actually became a Christian because she started to be convicting because her husband didn't assume that everybody there was Christians. She said, I'd never heard that I was a sinner. My parents just assumed that I was a Christian. So I just grew up learning Christian things and talking a Christian way and so forth. So if we understand that our, our kids are sinners, then it, it's going to save us from a lot of confusion. Why are they acting this way? Why won't they listen? Why are they so manipulative? <laughs> Why are they so sneaky? Like all these things. So we're not going to be shocked if we know that when our kids act a certain way. We don't have to be embarrassed because everybody's kids are acting that way. Whether in public or in private, when our kids are little, um, until they meet Christ, they don't have that internal war going on. The internal war is just, there isn't one. The internal war comes when the Holy Spirit begins to convict them and they become Christians. And then the war and the process of sanctification and spiritual growth develops. But until then, it, this is them acting as their own kings. And trying to manipulate you and anybody else to get what they want. This is they just come out of the womb this way. And we know this. I mean, we, we know this. But for some reason, we still get confused. I think I do. And wonder, why is it going on like this? Why isn't there better behavior in this particular time or season? And, but we won't be shocked if they act like sinners because they are. And uh, so since that's true, then, as parents and as believers... So as believers, we have been given the Great Commission. And the epicenter of the Great Commission for the believer isn't neighbors, it isn't co-workers, it isn't friends, it isn't extended family. God has literally brought, He's made it really easy for you to go forth into all the world. He's made it really, really easy. He's actually brought children into your home who don't know Him. And He's commissioned you to give the gospel to them, baptize them, and then teach them all that I have, I have uh, taught you. So the Great Commission is literally in front of us to tell them what Christ has done for sinners and call them to repent and believe. Now, that's easier said than done, getting that in an understandable way to a three, four, five, six, ten-year-old. It's, it's, uh, but it is our responsibility. So God has literally put people right in front of us so we don't have to go very far. The Great Commission is just right there. The epicenter of Great Commission work for the parent is in the home. And every parent is called to be an evangelist in the home. Even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, Kurt and I, it was another thing we were talking about today. Timothy didn't necessarily have the gift of evangelism, but he was called to do the work of an evangelist. And for us, we, we may say, you know what, I don't have a natural gift of evangelism. 
Kale, I use him as an example quite a bit. He's, he's a natural evangelist. He's got giftings of evangelism. I think Dan has some giftings of evangelism. There's an ability to talk with people. And I think in some ways I've been given a gift of evangelism as well. Um, many of you have been given this gift. You, you may say, though, I, I'm not an evangelist. I don't like just striking up conversations with people about the deep things of life and God and the heart and all that kind of stuff. And it makes me nervous. Um, okay, but in the home, we do the work of evangelists. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do, anyways. So I want to consider the fact that children are born in sin, uh, just with two passages, Ephesians 2. These are familiar passages with you, um, I'm sure. Just Ephesians 2, we'll look at 1 through 10, but really focusing in, just on 1, 1 and 2 and 3. Michael Kelly gave a really fun example of his child that you know, sinfulness of children, and he talked about how he got stern with his son and said, if, if you mess with those tissues, that his son was messing with tissues in, in the downstairs basement, and if you mess with those tissues again, I'm going to spank you or ground you or whatever it is. And he said his son looked at him and thought about it for a second. Oh, he was going to put him in timeout. He was thinking about it for a second, looked right at him, picked up the tissue, picked it up out of the tissue holder, held it up in the air, and turned around and walked right to timeout on his own. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like it just, okay, I'll go to timeout. Who cares? I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think we all have fun examples. I mean, not fun, but funny examples like that of our, our children acting in that way. Um, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is applicable to everyone, uh, not just adults, but children as well. This is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And by nature is the key point there, that there is by our very existence an identity and an allegiance that is anti-God. By nature... So by very existence, what it means to be human is that there is an inherent hostility against God in the way we function. The human being comes out of the womb functioning independent and in rebellion of God. I know my way. I, I know what's best. I can get life. I don't trust God. I trust myself. I don't trust my parents. I don't trust anybody. I am in control. By nature, they are children of wrath. We are. All of us who were born in this world were at one time children of wrath. And I think it's really important for us to understand about our kids the nature of their, their condition. It's not just that they're spiritually sick or that they need some more information. It's not in our ability through giving them just enough information or giving them just enough, uh, just enough training or giving them something that, that if we just do it the right way, the secret sauce, then they're going to come alive. They are spiritually dead, and we need to know that about them. This is not in our ability to breathe life into them. We can't call life out of the darkness or speak to dead bones like Ezekiel and, and say, live. We can't call out to Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. We can't do that. So our children are children of wrath like the rest of mankind, sons of disobedience. Uh, it's, it's true biblically. It's true experientially. We just know this to be the case that, that um, children believe their parents are foolish. Okay? 
Well, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 9 through 20. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then, are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we typically just apply this to adults. But tell me this doesn't fit the description of toddlers. The venom, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Tell me that doesn't apply to toddlers. I mean, that's like the perfect description of almost every toddler I've ever met, you know? I mean, it's like, I mean, their paths are ruin and misery. I mean... They're so much fun. They're so delightful. But that is a toddler. I mean, that describes the human condition so well. It just does it so. It's perfect. They're not seeking God. Huh? Wait till they're teenagers. Yeah, okay. Wait till they're teenagers. <laughs> teenagers. Okay. Um, let me read you a couple excerpts. And, and I, again, I just think these things are so crucial for us to just not, just to hear and believe. And some of it's hard. And I want to get to the age of cognizance here in just a, a little bit, or the ability of cognizance here in a bit. And we may disagree on that, and I'm, that's okay. But um, I'm going to make an appeal for why, even though this is true, uh, those babies who die in infancy, children who get in car crashes, this horrific scenes, that they are saved by God's grace. And I'll, I'll show you why I believe that here in a second. But I want to read a couple excerpts from, uh, from uh, Paul Tripp. Uh, here's what he says. There is no more harmful thing in a child's life than his own sin. Okay, get that. There is no more harmful thing in a child's life than his own sin. To be made aware of it and its power to destroy is good and a loving thing. So letting our children know their own sinfulness is good for them. Beginning to have these conversations about sin and not just assuming there's just a place of innocence. The starting point is innocence. It's not. The starting point is not innocence. And not only are kids, not only are kids um, sinful, but they're also broken. They're broken because they're sinful. And so there are aspects of their personality that come out also that we're starting to see, okay, that needs to be restored. That's broken because they're sinful. And so one of the things that we're charged with as parents is helping them understand that. It's important to understand that your children don't come into the world seeing their sin or acknowledging its gravity. That's your job as a parent. We are called, with the Holy Spirit's help, to begin to help our kids see that about themselves. It goes on. Sin means our children on their own have no, no ability to live as God has ordained and commanded them to live. No parental control, no educational system, no personal success will give them this ability. They need divine intervention. Now, let me just say this as a parent. 
There was a, like reading that, in some sense, it's hard to read, but in another sense, it's freeing. It really is freeing because you can't, we can't control our kids from the earliest age. We can set up parameters. We are their God-given authority. But we cannot make them behave at a heart level. Cannot do that. It's important. The second word David uses is iniquity. Iniquity is moral uncleanness. It's heartbreaking to consider, but biblically true, that our children come into this world unclean on the inside. What does this mean? Moral uncleanness means that, that they are naturally attracted to what God says is wrong. And because they are, they are susceptible to a myriad of temptations that greet them every day. The problem with our children is deeper than the fact that they have less than perfect parents or siblings or siblings that are selfish or friends that are mean or that they live in a world that is broken. Their problem is that they come, come to all of these situations with a susceptibility to temptation and attraction to what is wrong. If you look carefully, you'll see this attraction and susceptibility operating in your own children almost every day. I'm going to read just a couple more just because these are so helpful. Every sin is vertical. Every sin is a fist in the face of God. Every sin is a desire to remove God from His throne and sit there yourself. Every time your children sins, they tell themselves that they are smarter than God, that they know better and can write their own rules. Every sin is claiming independence from God. Every sin puts your children in the center of the world and makes life all about them. And then the last one. I've written this elsewhere, but it needs to be said here. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. Until your children begin to give up on themselves, their wisdom, their strength, and their righteousness, they will not cry out for God's mercy. As long as they retain hope that they can make it without your or God's help, their own way, they will deny the sin inside of them and take life into their own hands. The person who is seeking forgiveness is acknowledging that they are not in charge, that their life does not belong to them, and that they have transgressed God's, God's boundaries, that they have no ability to buy their way back into God's favor. Then, in their hopelessness, they run to the only place of hope, the forgiving and restoring hands of the Redeemer. So it's crucial for us we don't want kids to grow up assuming they don't have to be born again. Like our kids have to be born again. You must be born again. And so to shield them from things for their, for their either ego or their, or their personality or for their what we think is mental health, um, they need to know they're not the center of the world, that they are not perfect. They're not little angels. They need to feel the weight of their disobedience against us and against God. And we need to use those opportunities to take them to Jesus. Okay, this is kind of like a, a commercial break here because I want us to see children who, um, again, I don't want to spend a ton of time thinking about it, but I know that for so many, there, there are questions when it comes to abortion or miscarriages, some of the hard things that people deal with. Um, questions abound, and depending upon what theological camps you find yourself in, there, there's kind of disparity in what people believe about this. And uh, I'm going to, from Romans chapter 1, just make an appeal to God's grace over the lives of our children, even though this is true of them, that they are born in sin, that they are responsible for their sin, um, or excuse me, they're born in sin, and they are from the womb sinful and therefore broken. 
God's grace, I believe, covers all babies who die in the womb, all babies who are born, and all people who do not have the cognitive ability to process information about God. So those who have mental disabilities, those who die too young to uh, be able to process sorts of, that sort of information. I want to look real quick at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. Uh, John Piper has a really good Ask Pastor John about this um, that we could post somewhere. Andy, maybe we could post that online. This is a really good resource. Just a four-minute little Q&A where he goes to the same passage. And I think this is just so helpful. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, it says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and push it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For, the, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so according to these verses, the reason people are held without excuse is because what is plain about God has been revealed to them through the created order. So the baseline reason that people are held accountable to God is that God's power is perceived clearly in creation. General revelation. People can look at this earth, and what the Bible says is that people look at creation, and then what it's true, people know just by being created, even as fallen sinners, they know there's a God, and they know that there's a creator, but they suppress the truth. They push it down. They don't like it, so the truth is, it is it's pressed down, and even though I know this is true, I'm going to reject the overwhelming evidence in front of me, and I'm going to come up with ulterior, ulterior means for how everything exists. Everything that is, is. So I'm going to suppress it. I'm going to push it down in my mind and heart. Even though it's plain, it's right in front of me, I'm going to suppress this. God has revealed himself. So what if creation cannot be conceived, can't be perceived, can't be looked at? then it seems the natural flow here is that even though kids are sinners, they cannot perceive God through nature, therefore cannot suppress this truth. So they're not held without excuse. There is an excuse there. They can't, there, there is an innocence there. There's, there's not the ability to recognize by looking at this earth, you look at this building, and you recognize there's a builder, even if you don't see the building plans, even if you don't go up to the building code center and find out who built this building, you know, without having to talk to the builder, that somebody built this building. Just by common reasoning, you just know somebody built this building. God created this earth, but there are people, infants, don't know that somebody built this building. We don't have the ability to reason in the same way. So I think, according to this, that all babies, those who are mentally challenged, are, are, do have an excuse. And they are covered by God's electing, choosing grace. He has called them to himself, even though they never had an opportunity to repent and believe. And so I think that that's true. You can certainly disagree with that. But for me, I think according to that passage, that is a, a faithful understanding of that. But I also want us to see that children have the ability, by God's grace, to believe. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. This is a really neat passage. Um, 
where Jesus is calling out those who are causing little children to stumble in sin. And he said, it's better that a, a, millst- or a rope be tied around their neck and them tied to a millstone and then thrown into the sea and dragged to the bottom of the ocean and cause one of these little ones to sin. But I want you to see, and he says this also in Luke, excuse me, in Mark as well. In Luke, he does not say the words who believe in me. But I want you to see what he says in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck, be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus acknowledges and distinguishes between kids and says there are some children who believe in him. My story starts very young. I was five years old, and I began to feel conviction. In I was sitting in my room. This is actually happening over multiple days. How many people, do you remember anything from when you were five? Hardly anything. Okay, this is what's wild. I vividly remember the internal t- turmoil that I felt as a five-year-old. My mother was a children's church director at a church. And I was horrified that the church would find out that the children's church director's son wasn't a Christian. Because it started to dawn on me, I started to feel conviction and realize I'm not saved. Now, I look at five-year-olds and would question that those sorts of thoughts were going through the mind of a five-year-old. And yet, as a little boy, I remember this until Derek Henson, it was a summer, my dad was working outside, Derek Henson the day before, buddy I grew up with, my best friends in the world, he got saved, the day before, and I found out about it. Well, I had been walking, what my parents didn't know, I had been walking, my mom would be in the kitchen a lot, and my dad would be outside doing whatever my dad was doing, and I would walk from my bedroom at 606 Carbon Street, and I would walk and leave my bedroom, and I, you'd have to turn here, kind of walk through the living room, and I'd get about halfway through the living room, and I would get ashamed, and turn back around and walk to my room. I was just so embarrassed to tell my mom I wasn't a Christian. I didn't want my parents to find out. When I heard that Derek had got saved the day before, I knew I've got to go in and talk to my mom. I have to do this. And so I remember walking in there and talking to my mom. And she sat down and said, Mom, I want to be saved. Didn't know what that meant. Um, I I knew I just, I knew I wasn't saved. I didn't know know all that that meant. But nobody is saved because we know all that that means. Nobody. We're not saved because of extraordinary faith. We're not saved because we got all the answers or we can memorize a catechism or anything like that. God gives faith. It's expressed simply. God saves sinners regardless of their age. And as a five-year-old boy, I would be one of those who believed in him. Not because of anything that I had done. Not because I had kind of distinguished myself amongst my friends at church or anything like that. But because the Holy Spirit brought me to life as a little boy. And I think it's important for us to realize, and you know what's neat? After that led to a series of like convicting things for me where I began to confess sin to my parents. I remember feeling very convicted. I was looking at a Sears magazine one time and looking at things that I shouldn't have been there. And I went and told my parents about it because I was so ashamed. I was like a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. And uh, there's a funny story behind that that I'll withhold. But anyways, we should ask and expect, ask, ask and expect that our kids... We'll believe in Jesus. 
Of the 6.2 billion people in the world, or coming up on 7 billion people, I'm way, I think it's 7.2 billion people in the world, you who love them, who love the grace of God, who love Jesus, are the parents that get to raise this child. What grace has already been given? I mean, just amazing grace has already been given to your children that God gave those children to you. Growing up in your home, that is a privilege that they are experiencing. God gives children faith to believe. And Jesus tells us to learn from kids. Like corrects people who say, no, they're too young. Don't bring them. They're too young. He's like, no, they're not. Let them come. Let them come. So, Matthew 18, the Great Commission, uh, Trip takes us here also. He says this is the most... He said the Great Commission is the most important parenting verse passage in all of the Bible. It's the most important, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says this. Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Zach Eswine says, if God's going to reach the world, somebody better make Webster Groves their great ambition for the gospel, for the kingdom expansion. And his point is, Brian and I were listening to that the other day. His point is, if, if God's going to reach the world, somebody's got to, go to, got to go and stay in Carbondale. Somebody's got to look out here and say, you know what? If the world's going to be reached, God has me here. We're staking a you're putting a flag in the ground for, for God and His glory here. And we're fighting for the hearts of people in this city, in our neighborhood, in the city that you live. But you know where that flag gets put in the ground first? Before our city? Where's our, our local? If somebody's going to reach the world, somebody's got to reach our kids. Because they're a part of the world. And God has brought them into our homes. And so it starts at home. This is the epicenter of evangelism for the believer. The central point of evangelism when you have children in the home who are unsaved is the home. Before it is the neighborhood, before it is uh, going on evangelistic trips, before it is anything, before it is talking to your family or anything like that, evangelism is at home. And then when your kids become Christians, the epicenter of Christian discipleship of where you're training people is in the home. And so... It may mean when your kids are young, you actually have less time to give to other people in the church because you're investing all your evangelism efforts and your discipleship efforts at home. And you are investing in the church by doing that. It may not be investing in everybody else in the church, but you are investing in Christ Church Carbondale when you are investing in your children at home. When you're investing in each other. You're investing in the body of Christ as a whole when you're evangelizing your children, and discipling them. It doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be that flashy. But if somebody's going to reach the world, and your kids are a part of the world, God's brought them right to you. You don't have to go very far. You just go in the next room. So I think it's imperative for us to begin to pray, probably already are, I'm sure, pray and long for the regeneration of our children, uh, and then don't trust in your own power in parenting. If you notice... This night's wrapping up this, this whole parenting deal. We've not talked about hardly any practical parenting steps. How-to stuff. 
The Holy Spirit will teach you those sorts of things. There's, so, there's a, a, a million different op, you know, things that could happen with your kids. And you're just going to have to, like, you can't recite those. You can't plan those. You can't map those out. You just need to trust the Holy Spirit. But if we can get these big things, these big things in front of us that we've talked about the last three weeks, I think it helps us in, in so many other ways. We don't trust in our power. We cannot save our kids. Cannot save our kids. God has brought the Great Commission into our homes. We just got to go to the next room. Go, invite them in. To, go to the room you're in. Turn your attention, turn your heart, and start doing the work of an evangelist. Look for those opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, why don't we just go ahead and open it up then and just kind of talk.